I thought you'd appreciate a little bit of humour because I've stood in enough pulpits on five continents to look out and see that a lot of people look like they were baptised in vinegar. <laughs> but we can't have that. And I thought this really is, is a summary of LifePoint. Let me just tell you a little story first. Johnny's mother looked out the window and noticed him playing church with their three kittens. He had the kittens sitting in a row and he was preaching to them. And everyone goes, oh. She smiled and went about her work. And a little while later, she heard loud meowing and hissing and ran back to the open window to see Johnny baptizing the kittens in a tub of water. She called out, Johnny, stop that. Those kittens are afraid of water. He looked at her and said, they should have thought about that before they joined my church. <laughs> You've got to keep watching. <laughs> Hallelujah. <clears throat> Let me just introduce um, me and my family, I suppose. I was brought up to worship and serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Ishmael, the God of Peter, James, John and sometimes even Paul, the God of my parents and grandparents and my grandfather, Matthew Bell, was a Church of Christ minister from 1911 until the 1940s. Uh, that's him in the front, obviously. Um, my the funny thing is, and I still do not fully understand why, but when I see him one day, I'll ask him, but then it won't matter. I inherited his sermon notebooks, which was absolutely fascinating. In 1916, for example, he preached about the spirit of greed that motivated Germany to go to war. And I mean, this, that's a wee bit ahead of its time, I think, that sort of concept. My uncle Alan, on the um, right-hand side, was a teaching missionary for the Churches of Christ in Dadea, in Bulawayo, in what's now Zimbabwe, for 40 years. Yes. Like restaurants that need rebranding, churches do that sometimes too. So this is, this is my family heritage, is this denomination. Okay? My auntie on the right was married to Len Falk that owned Windermere Gardens, the other side of Whanganui. So I'm sort of moving back to the area. My uncle Matt, um, named after his father, behind Grandma, he was a Presbyterian minister, so he was a black sheep of the family. <laughs> I went to church many times, including before I was born. Later, I went to visit the Queen. That'll give you an idea how old I am. <laughs> and my mum and dad celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary at Liverton Castle over in Whanganui in 1992. So that just sort of gives you a bit of an idea on these parts are not unknown to me. And, and neither is uh, the traditions of the fellowship. So I want to begin by, I bless your ears that you may hear the message and apply it to your life. I bless your mind that you may understand the truth about your unique identity and destiny. 
and I bless your spiritual life that you may feel the presence of God as you discover the depth and breadth of his personal love for you as you read his word and as you listen to his Holy Spirit. The very first memory verse I learned, and I'm trying to remember when it was, but it was sometime in the 60s, is this from Luke 4.18, which is Jesus reading from Isaiah chapter 61. When you see capital S with Spirit, it's only the Holy Spirit, okay? So the Holy Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. And in the Hebrew, that would be bruised in their spirit. Okay? I want to look at a negative side for a couple of minutes before we turn to the positive side. I want to ask the question or answer the question of where do curses come from? There is plenty of scripture references for these. Some of them come from God. Sometimes men representing God speak uh, them, and I'll give you an example shortly. Joshua, for example, pronounced a curse on whoever rebuilt the walls and gates of Jericho. 500 years later, scripture affirms by saying, these are the men who lost their eldest sons for building the walls and the gates of Jericho. And that's just one example. People in relational authority, and I'll explain that shortly as well. Self-imposed curses. And those who practice witchcraft. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Balaam was a pagan prophet. He was not a godly man. But it was Balaam's ass that tried to sort out his theology. Okay? Now, it's interesting that the word curse occurs 173 times in the Bible. Nearly double the number of that is the word iniquity, which is a, a related concept which I don't have time to, to get into today. David cursed a mountain and 3,000 years later there's still no growth on it. I've got a recent photo of that mountain. Uh, Joshua, I've already mentioned. Rebecca cursed herself and died in childbirth. In Matthew, Jesus' um, story that we all know so well, the Jews cursed themselves and their children for the blood of Jesus. And it's interesting, within a matter of years, over one million Jews died at the hands of the Romans. That was a dumb thing to do. Can Christians have curses? Of course. As Derek Prince says, you can have anything you want. There are three examples from Scripture. Judas, Ananias, and Sapphira. I, I was listening to an audio tape years ago of David Pawson from England, and he was asked by a Pentecostal pastor if he believed uh, about being slain in the spirit. And he said, oh yes, it happened to Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> Some of you won't get that. You'll just need to go and ask someone. Okay? Let me give you from Derek Prince the seven symptoms of a curse. And let me start by saying this. One is unfortunate. Two's interesting. Three's a pattern. I normally look for patterns. Okay? The words underneath are just the sort of words that people might say. 
mental or emotional disorders. Secondly, repeated or chronic sicknesses, usually hereditary ones. Um, where all the men in a family seem to have heart attacks in their 50s, when there's a pattern. I heard of one family in France of eight women in two generations who set fire to themselves. Now, one's unfortunate, two's interesting, that's past pattern. So this is when you see a repetitive nature to it. Thirdly, barrenness, miscarriage, and female reproductive problems. It's been my real privilege to pray for uh, women who have not been able to conceive, and within a year they have. I've thoroughly, I've got photographic evidence of one of them. A breakdown of marriage and family alienation. People just stop talking to other members of the family. I think it would be fair to say those in Yorkshire are amongst the worst in the world for this. And people from Yorkshire affirm that to me. A continuing financial insufficiency regardless of income. You might have a big income, but if it's always gone, there's holes in your wallet. You know what I'm saying. Being accident prone. I've met a lot of people who fit that. One lady had totaled nine cars. By the time we got to her, she had whiplash and could barely walk three little steps up to get ministry, but she went away healed. And she was a Presbyterian, would you believe it? <laughs> and lastly, history of suicides and unnatural or untimely deaths. If you see these patterns... I, I'm, you know, one of the most dramatic examples of this that I experienced was over 20 years ago. I was in Bendigo in Victoria, Australia. And I, I don't know why I'd gone through this list uh, about a different topic totally and an invitation for ministry. And these two twins, they would probably be in their early 20s, came forward. They're both weeping. And they said, we can tick all seven of those in our family. And I said, well, uh, we can do a bit of first aid right now, but let me introduce you to one of the local pastors who knows what to do. So I did that. They went to a different church, but their own pastor, and this pastor friend of mine uh, took care of it. Six weeks later, I got a phone call from that pastor saying, you remember those two girls? And I said, yes. What happened? And he said, well, we ministered with them on behalf of the family, and in the six weeks since, 42 members of their family have come to the Lord. So sometimes there are other side effects that are stopping things happening. So when we're dealing with a curse, there are three things we need to do, the three R's. We repent. We recognize we made a negative confession. Actually, the word confession means that we bring our thoughts and words in line with God's word. That's actually what it means. We revoke it, we unsay it, we cancel it. And third, thirdly, we replace it. We need to change our language. A lot of us are killing ourselves. You know, your feet are killing you or something like that. And we need to stop saying those things because Satan loves it and God doesn't. When I was in North Carolina, um, back in 2005, somebody gave me a book and I was enjoying read it, reading it. I've since had a meal with the author, although he's since passed on. Uh, but it was a quote from another book, and I've enjoyed having the author of that in, uh, in New Zealand four times. 
The book is called The Two-Minute Miracle. I think we've still got a, a few copies of it left. And it talks about a childhood friend of this singer, uh, and the singer, uh, the, not the singer, the person was a, was a name called Bobby. He was an Assemblies of God pastor's son. So that'll put you in the, a, a bit of an understanding here. Let me just quote from this, because this is significant. Over the years... Bobby became rebellious as anger, bitterness and resentment took root in his life against God, his parents and his church. His life became consumed with drugs as he gradually became shackled with addictions. One day Bobby disappeared. His broken-hearted parents didn't know if he'd killed himself with an overdose or was murdered by a drug gang. For two years they didn't hear anything from their son. Not a phone call, not a letter, nothing. God's dad felt the crushing grip of months of pent-up frustration and pain while driving on the outskirts of the Arkansas city where he lived. He pulled his car off onto the side of the road, got out and walked off some distance from the highway. It was a, a field, a paddock. He pointed his finger to the north and yelled with all his might, Bobby, come home. Turning to the south, he yelled the same words and the same to the east and the west. He didn't really know why he did it. He just said it felt, made him feel a little better. Two days later, there's a knock on the door. There's Bobby looking like death warmed up, but there's Bobby. He's home. Didn't take long before this dad said, Son, what brought you home? Dad, he said, I was sitting on the front porch of an old shack on the edge of the desert in Arizona just to understand the difference from here Arizona from his mum and dad would be Sydney, Australia. So that's a fair distance to get in two days. He said, I was stoned out of my mind. A wind started blowing and suddenly grew stronger. Now, I know more of the story than's written in the, on the slide or on, in the book. He said at that time of the year, there's no wind in the desert. And he thought he was hallucinating and he saw this whirlwind and it was coming towards him. And he stood up and he nearly got blown off the porch. He was holding on to the upright. And he said, Dad, I could have sworn I heard your voice in the wind saying, Bobby, come home. And Dad, I got here as fast as I could. Real stuff does happen. As I say, I know a lot more of the, of the story um, because I know the author of both the books that this was written in. I was, uh, the following month to that, I was in St. John, Newfoundland, and I was teaching for several days at the worship centre. Now, that is the most depressing place I've been to in my life. It's a city of about 100,000 people. 20, 30 years before, the cod fishery had collapsed. We all know the history if you were alive at the time, and they weren't allowed to fish for cod anymore. And so huge numbers of Newfoundlanders went across Canada and elsewhere. Uh, you know how sometimes we rather unkindly have Irish jokes and whatever? Well, Canadians have Newfie jokes because they really do look down on them. It's, it's a bit sad, really. Everyone's, uh, because it's a fishing city or town, everyone's lost someone at sea over the years. Alcoholism was rife. All the dozen churches in the town were there for the training uh, and that, that I was doing. I read that story not knowing where this was going. I just was trying to be obedient. 
And I said to Gordon McGowan, the senior pastor there, I said, can we do what I think the Lord wants doing? He said, go for it. So I said, is there anybody here with a prodigal? Every hand went up. So I said, okay, come out the front. Let's find, where's North? Let's repeat what Bobby's dad did. And so we did. Somebody took a photo. Gordon McGowan's got his arm around my back. And we did that, and it took some time, let me tell you, because they had a lot of prodigals. We called the prodigals home, and then I don't know, again, I don't know why I said it, but I said, Lord, we command the cod to reproduce and provide jobs for these men and women when they return home. Well, that's practical. And I thought no more about it until two years later, no, three years later, I was in Ontario, um, where my wife comes from. There's the Toronto Star. The date's on it. It's 2009, so it's four years later, actually. 10,000 prodigals have come home, and the fishermen are catching cod and ask for a license to catch it, and they were told there aren't any, and they'd slap a fish on the desk and say, well, what's this, white bait? <laughs> you get the picture, I think. Sometimes we do things and we have no idea what we've done. We just do it because the Holy Spirit says to do it. What I, yeah, no, I, I won't add to that. That's probably enough. Deuteronomy 30.15 says, Behold, I've set before you today life and good and death and evil. Or in God's word um, paraphrase, it says, Today I offer you life and prosperity or death and destruction. So your words are important. There was a Korean lady in one of my training courses in Lower Hutt, where we used to live, and she decided she would go and show this as a demonstration to her teenage kids. She boiled up some rice in one pot, put them in two jars in different cupboards and spoke differently to, to both jars. And the kids probably thought she was nuts. But she's got the date on it. It was August 2012. She put them in the jars in different cupboards for one month and you can actually probably see it better from the bottom, to show the difference that word makes in a very practical thing. Their kids now believe, because they saw it for themselves, even though they thought their mum was cuckoo. So the power of word curses is in proportion to the authority of the person speaking, whether it be a parent, a teacher, a pastor, or spouse, the number of people we've had to cut curses from teachers off over the years is quite a lot. You'll never, you know, you, you fill in the blank. And as Derek Prince says, the effects of a curse continue in a family line until someone knows how to stop them. Okay. So let me now start my message. Because it's about blessing. But the thing is that curses can dwell because of a lack of blessings. That's the point I'd like you to take away today. So I have three goals here. To understand what blessing is and the power it has in our lives today. Secondly, to recover and identify any missed blessings in our own lives. And to learn 
to bless others. So you probably all know the scriptures, but let me quote Rolf Garborg who said today, Christians have often overused the word blessing to the point they've almost emptied the word of any meaning at all. But the biblical significance of the word is of profound importance in our daily lives. Gary Smalley and, and Trent, uh, John Trent said this in one of their books, few people see themselves as struggling with missing out on their family's blessings, but people around them see it. So you may not be aware of something, but your friends, your family may recognise it. Family may well be under it as well. Larry Crabb said everyone is looking for significance and security. And Craig Hill said everyone needs to discover their identity and destiny. And I'm amazed how many people get to retirement age and they still haven't because nobody's taught them. So there is a power in blessing. Ephesians talks about this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So, there are seven times in our lives we need blessings for our identity and destiny. At conception, at pregnancy, during pregnancy, birth including their naming and their dedication, their early childhood, their puberty and their adulthood including in marriage and their senior years. So, these are major questions that come at those times, maybe not spoken. At conception, am I welcome? That's especially true now that our parliament has passed a law that abortion can go through till birth, which is totally abhorrent to God as well as, I hope, us. In pregnancy, is there a safe place for me in this world? At birth, will my needs be met? Who can I trust as we start to grow up. Do I have what it takes? This is why teenagers want to stretch the boundaries. They're trying to find where they fit. During adulthood, what am I called to do? It's unfortunate that too many seem to get quite old before they even start asking the question. And will, who will share my journey in this world? And as we get older, am I still needed? And we all ask these questions, maybe not in those words, but there'll be similarities. So what are blessings? They're not material things. They're spiritual resources intended for us by our Heavenly Father to enable us to live successfully. In the ancient Hebrew social culture, God mandated many practices and procedures that included various kinds of blessings. You see, when the walls are down, when the blessings are withheld, you lose self-control. There's distress around you. Um, stuff is stolen from you because the hedge is broken. There's different scriptures that refer to these. And the need is to rebuild the walls because sin caused the break. I'll summarize it this way. A curse is being empowered to fail. A blessing is being empowered to succeed. That's probably the best way I can sort of summarize it. Let me take you back to Genesis 1.28. It says this, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over all the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Sometimes we need to look a bit deeper at some of these w words. He blessed them 
so that they could rule. You cannot rule until you are blessed. Okay? Rolf Garborg said something very interesting. The ancient Hebrews recognized words of blessing spoken in the name of God are somehow able to transmit the power and favor of God. Okay? How we think and behave is influenced by our family of origin. Where I come from is my identity. Who values me is a place to grow. Where I'm going is your destiny. So how does blessing work? Well, it's to honour and instil value through words, deeds and ceremonies. Okay, words say it, deeds show it, and ceremonies seal it. Okay, it's a central theme in scripture. It's mentioned over 300 times, 60 times in the book of beginnings. It's given to humanity in the first chapter of the first book and it's restored because of the removal of curses in the last chapter of the book in Revelation 22. The reason Jesus came to earth was to restore blessings by absorbing the curses through his death, according to Galatians. So God designed us to be blessed. I've just given you these two scriptures so that if you were making notes, you still have a chance to write down the reference and look it up later. Let me give you some examples from scripture of the power of blessing. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Isaac blessed his son. And then he blessed all his sons and grandsons. It's interesting, somebody in the last 30-odd years was reading that and had a map of the traditional family areas of Israel where the different tribes were and there was mention of oil and they went drilling and found oil. Been there for, I don't know, three, four thousand years and nobody knew about it. Depends on, God might have just put it there once they started drilling because they see faith. Balaam's blessed the Israelites. He didn't actually have much choice because it was that or die. <coughs> Aaron blessed the Israelites and we sang that before. But if you go the, get the, the verse before and the verse after, the command is, this is how you will bless. You will say to them, and then he finishes with, so I will put my name on them and I will bless them. See, when God blesses you, you're blessed. And nothing anyone else can do can change it unless you agree with them. Okay? So Derek Prince said, a curse or blessing is a word spoken with some form of spiritual power and authority, either for good or evil, that sets in motion something that will probably go on from generation to generation. That's why getting our words right when our kids are, are being a bit naughty, being careful how we, what we say to them. So how do we access blocked blessings? Well, Leviticus 26 talks about confessing the sins of ourselves and our family line. Some of you may remember the story when Daniel reads in the scriptures that the captivity was going to run out of time and then they would be sent home, but he had to do something. He wasn't alive when the Hebrew people were taken into captivity in Babylon, but he understood the ways of God enough to say, God, we sinned. As I say, he wasn't alive, so he has no personal culpability or responsibility. That's called identification or repentance. And some of your family bloodlines need a clean up or a bit of 
exploring prayerfully. <laughs> okay? No one has had a perfect family. We all suffer from some form of bent relationships. Therefore, everyone needs to recover some of their missed blessings. How do we get those? Well, blessings are designed to be given, not taken. It works best when freely given by one in authority in our lives. And if God's first choice is not available to us, someone somewhere can stand up for them and do it. I did a teaching at one of our three summer schools that we do in the three biggest cities in New Zealand every January. And there was a, a man there from Palmerston North. I won't name him because I don't want to embarrass him, but I don't think it would. He rang me about a month later and he said, um, you know that I attend, now I know this man, he's now touching 80, so he's not a spring chicken, but he's still in touch with what God's doing. And that's wonderful. I just saw him the other week, actually. He said, um, we've got some families in our fellowship that there's no dads in any of these families. They're Pacific Islanders. Dad's shot through somewhere, probably with another um, temporary wife. And he said, I can see this, these patterns in these young men. He said, do I have your permission to do this? And I said, you don't need it, just go do it. I gave him some stuff that he wanted. He went to his pastor and arranged this. And the following Sunday, the pastor handed the service over to him and he called these families out, mothers and aunties, because they had a heads up of what was coming, brought these young men out the front. And he stood in the place of the fathers that none of them knew, and he blessed them, and there wasn't a dry eye in the place. And their lives have totally changed. So I put that as a thought that somebody took my words and did something with it, and that's important. So, at conception, the two foundational issues are how was I conceived? Was it in love or in violence? And how was the news received? Oh, no, I've already got six kids. I don't need another one. Some mothers do think these things through. And it's interesting because at conception, the spirit of a child is not just made alive, and there's examples from Scripture, but during that pregnancy, there's something being unpacked it's interesting that the first person who really responded to Jesus was John in the womb. Think about that. Dr. Megan Gunner said this, we need to think about what we're doing to pregnant women. It seems hard to believe that stress starts before birth. Ultrasound images make the womb look such a fluid, peaceful place. But in reality, she said, children in utero seem to be very sensitive to their mother's stress levels. And I'm sure that's a lot more than just their stress. Okay? The emotions emerge. Mary and Elizabeth, I just mentioned. During the birth, what happens? There's a delivery. There's a dedication that follows. I find it interesting, I, I believe that in China they don't name a child for a year, they want to look at its character and apply a name that fits it, which I find interesting. 
And then there's the naming. Names have meanings. I've got a big book somewhere of 10,000 names and what they mean, and some people have blessings and some don't. During the dedication of Jesus, how many people were involved? There was the priest, there were some relatives, there was Joseph and Mary and Anna and Simeon who weren't relatives. Why were they there? To make up for the lack of other close relatives to fully bless Jesus' identity and his destiny. Remember um, what Simeon said, now, I can, now I take, you can take me home, Lord. I've fulfilled my purpose, which is to speak blessing on the Messiah. So he didn't word it that way, but that's the implication. If you want to read about it, it's in Luke 2. Early childhood, people brought little children to Jesus and he took them in his arms and he blessed them. I hope grandparents will learn to do that if they haven't already. Every opportunity you get. There's an old proverb, as the twig is bent, so grows the tree. That's very true. So, in early childhood, well, the wise men came. What was the inferred age of Jesus during this incident? Actually, two years of age. We often hear about the terrible twos. With respect, I think you'll find, almost without exception, they don't need to be terrible. I love this statement. Jim Valvano said this, My father gave the greatest gift anyone could give another person. He believed in me. That's what we do. And in scripture, in Psalm 127, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Just remember that when they're being naughty. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. Hmm. At puberty, second most critical time, Jesus is 12 years old at the temple. Now in Hebrew culture, the bar mitzvah for boys and bat mitzvah for girls is when mother releases her control, if you like, of the child and hands it over to the father. That's part of what a bar mitzvah is. It changes. Sometimes experimentation is mistaken for rebellion. Some of you fathers here have still got to work that through in preparation before they reach that. Hey, Japheth. The urgent takes precedent over the important, helping them sort priorities. Emerging identity is recognised and accepted, often by others before the parents, because they're just busy. Just remember, busy stands for buried under Satan's yoke. So many fathers are uninvolved. The child is criticised, perhaps, instead of being blessed. And appropriate submission to parents is needed but it needs to be explained in terms of consequences as well. So Luke gives a picture of a balanced family um, with a fully blessed child at puberty, and it says Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. Because the attributes were spoken verbally and then acted out in a family. I love this from Burt Reynolds. You're not a man till your father says you're a man. 
There are some of you here who probably need, needed to have heard that a lot earlier. What about adulthood? Through your baptism, through your ministry, assuming that you've done those, um, being beloved because of God. This includes marriage and honeymoon where applicable. Um, I don't know if you've heard of or noticed this, but marriages that are not blessed by parents actually never seem to be very happy. There's a lack of leaving and cleaving, mother's apron um, strings you've heard of. I know a family that ended up in divorce needlessly. Um, Tried to help them, but he couldn't be helped because of his mother. You have to leave before you cleave. Sorry, you you cannot cleave until you leave, I'll put it out the right way. There's a rebirth of identity in a new family. You're sowing seeds into a new identity together and unhealthy emotional bonds show up at this time and they need to be addressed. That's probably best addressed by whoever's going to marry them beforehand. Push some buttons and see where the problems are, the fault lines. It's a problem, isn't it? (laughs) And sometimes there are other relationships that need to be dealt with. And if they're sexual relationships, soul ties need to be broken. I could give you plenty of examples of those as well. So I've mentioned about uh, setting up a home as a new couple and so on. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about putting aside your childishness, your thinking, your reasoning, your talking. This is a new family identity that's being created. I'm just skipping over these. We could spend an hour on each of them, I guess. But as we get into our senior years, there is honour with age. Proverbs 6 talks about a hoary head being a sign of wisdom. I hope by the time you get salt and pepper, you've got the wisdom. (laughs) Okay? And in Proverbs 31, it talks about children blessing their parents. It's been my real privilege over the years to watch teenagers bless their parents in front of a group of people. That's pretty rare, I might say, but it needs to happen because they need to be told this is what Scripture teaches. It says the elders no longer work in the field. Instead, they sit at the gate because they basically became the judges of the city. That's where issues were solved. Okay? So... Well, here we go. The glory of young men is their strength, but grey hair, the splendour of the old. Skip the old. I think just elderly will do. Her husband is respected in the city gate where he takes his seat amongst the elders of the land. So I want to bless you, and then we're going to have communion. May God remember you like Noah, favour you like Moses. Honour you like Mary, fight for you like the Israelites, prosper you like Isaac, promote you like Joseph, intervene for you like Esther, protect you like Daniel, use you like Paul, heal you like Naaman, answer you like Elijah, anoint you like David, and keep you safe like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego which should just about do it. Do you feel blessed now?
Hallelujah. One of the blessings that God has given us is the Passover. And I don't want to expand on that. Maybe Trevor can take the cloth off the communion table, please. Um, the Passover was a covenant, one of the three covenants that God required everyone to present themselves before him. And they're teaching things. And I'm not going to go into that today, otherwise we'd be here until the meeting needs to start. But the interesting thing is, the, there are four cups of wine in the Passover. The third cup is the cup of redemption and the matzah which is broken and there's a real story about that whole piece of unleavened bread. Thank you, Trevor. So when Jesus did what we now call communion, it's just an inch and a foot long of the Passover. It's a teaching time for families. We read in 1 Corinthians the way that Paul addressed it in the way that he explained, even though he wasn't there at the original one uh, with Jesus and the disciples. The interesting thing is there is teaching and there is healing in this. My wife and I were sitting in church the communion juice onto her ankle which was very painful and it got instantly healed now I don't suggest you do that we don't want to have to clean up the carpet but there is something it's not magical but it's something that God puts his name to so I want to encourage you as you take the elements the unleavened bread it's not leaven because sin was removed and that's what the leaven speaks of and the Jew speaks of the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. This is not a snack. This is very, very important. And your ongoing life. It's interesting, Smith Wigglesworth had communion on his own every day of his life adult, as an adult. And look at his ministry because it brings him into close connection with God. So I invite you to come now. Help yourself, partake as we do, and see what God does in your lives. Father, I ask your blessing on the matzah and the juice, representing as they do part of your covenant with us. Let your covenant be so powerful in our lives for healing of our spirit, of our soul, and of our body. Let there be restoration of relationships where these have been broken or stretched. And Lord, let there be blessing in each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.